failure of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the century of lies. I'm Norm Stamper, former police chief of the city of Seattle, and this is the Drug Truth Network. Thank you for joining us on this special edition of Century of Lies. We're going to be providing reports from last week's Seattle Hemp Fest. Celebrating their 15th year, the Seattle Hemp Fest is now the world's largest protestival. Attendance estimates this year ranged from 150 to 170,000 people. There were, of course, dozens of great bands from all across the country, but the primary speaker, the one who brought down the house or raised the house, however you want to say it, was the former police chief of Seattle, a regular guest on the Drug Truth Network, and a member of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, Norm Stamper. I'm Norm Stamper. I'm the former police chief of the city of Seattle. Before that, I spent 28 years in the San Diego Police Department. I am currently promoting my book called Breaking Rank, a top cop's expose of the dark side of American policing, uh, one chapter of which is dedicated to the drug war uh, and to our need to end it and to uh, replace it with a medical model as opposed to a criminal model. Tell us about your involvement with this new organization, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. I'm a uh, proud member of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. As a matter of fact, I'm an advisory board member. I've given a number of speeches, several dozen as a matter of fact, in the past year for this organization and in the cause of ending prohibition. Norm, we hear the voice of the drug czar. We hear the head of the U.N. Drug Commission, Mr. Maria Costa, still claiming marijuana is as dangerous as uh, cocaine and heroin. How far can they reach with their war of propaganda? Well, I think it's very clear that as drug policy reformers step up the heat on, on the drug warriors, not just uh, locally or nationally, but internationally, uh, they become frightened, and I think that's what's happening. They've bought their own propaganda. They now feel this compulsion uh, to shade it, if not lie, uh, to the American people about the effects of marijuana, which is demonstrably uh, far safer than alcohol and most other drugs. The average policeman on the beat, sitting at the desk, they know these same truths, do they not? Why do they not uh, stand forth for justice? A lot of police officers, regrettably, have, have bought the propaganda. They've been fed it, after all, from probably uh, their, their days in elementary school when they were sitting in dare sessions. Uh, if that's not enough, they certainly get a good dose of it in the police academy and beyond. So some of them simply believe the propaganda. But there are many other police officers who are convinced that the drug war has caused more harm than good. They recognize the, the, the costs in dollars and cents and in human suffering, but they're afraid. They're afraid that if they speak up, they won't get a promotion. If they speak up, they won't get that job in homicide. Uh, police chiefs, I dare say, are oftentimes afraid that they're going to lose the best jobs they've ever had and jobs they never expected to get uh, if they speak the truth about the drug war, such as the strength of the other side, the prop propaganda machine of uh, Drug Enforcement Administration. My perception, many of the other 
drug reform organizations are starting to look at the LEAP concept of tax and regulate and control this, take it away from the hands of criminals, and to include that in their their presentations, their thought, and their outreach. Uh, your thoughts, sir. Do we all ne not need to join forces in that prohibition creates all of these problems we're trying to solve? Well, I think it's safe to say that we are all united in our opposition to the drug war. We have among us in the various community organizations and national organizations for drug policy reform differing opinions about how most effectively to make that happen. There are those, for example, in the marijuana law reform movement who believe that only marijuana should be legalized. There are those who believe that talking about the legalization of all drugs will actually produce a setback for their movement. I personally do not believe that. I respect that position. I think it's important that we all find ways to collaborate respectively. And I think it's also necessary to say that if LEAP's agenda, namely the regulated and controlled legalization of all drugs, does in fact embrace every aspect of the reform movement. So if LEAP is successful, and I am convinced that we will be, uh, Normal Drug Policy Alliance, uh, uh, every other drug organization will in fact benefit, and of course, so will the rest of the country. Uh, I'm a, a member of Normal. I'm a member of the Drug Policy Alliance. I support uh, every drug policy reform organization as part of this larger movement. But I would like to encourage uh, your viewers to check us out at leap.cc, www.leapcc, and sign on if you're in law enforcement uh, as a member of Leap. If you are not a part of the criminal justice system, please consider visiting this website and becoming a friend of LEAP. We are a very rapidly growing organization, and together we will make a difference. We just heard part of an interview I did with Norm Stamper using my new three-chip video camera as part of our forthcoming Unvarnished Truth program, Counterculture or pro-culture, which is derived from interviews we conducted in Seattle. Just after I conducted the interview with Norm, he was on the Hymposium stage there at the Seattle Hempfest. Thank you very, very much for that warm welcome. Uh, there's a theme that I would like to explore with you, talking at you for, I don't know, 15 minutes. Uh, and then with you following that. Uh, it's a theme that does arise in the drug policy reform movement, but one that I don't believe has been sufficiently stressed or reinforced. Uh, in 1966, when I was a recruit in the San Diego Police Academy, we spent half of our time in the classroom and the other half in the field at night with a senior officer. Uh, I will never forget a cold February night when assigned to a senior officer, we got a call, uh, a 415 family call. Uh, in, the, in the jargon today, that would be a domestic violence call. And it was domestic, and it was clearly violent. When we arrived at this stucco duplex, uh, there were two other officers standing on the porch. They explained to my senior partner and me that... Uh, that they were thinking about calling a supervisor to break down the door. 
Well, when we sized up the situation, my senior partner kicked in the door immediately. What we had seen was a six-foot-three-inch man, buff, prison-cut, bare-chested, with a ten-inch knife. His wife bound behind her backs with, with or behind her uh, back with uh, a belt. Her ankles were also bound. She was wearing a yellow nylon robe that was blood-drenched, and her face had been beaten to a pulp. You could not hardly distinguish facial features on this woman. In the background, when, uh, uh, children, ultimately we learned there were six, five of whom had been beaten by this man before he uh, unleashed his terror on, on his wife. So my senior partner, quite irritated at the first two officers, uh, devised a plan and with, within 30 seconds we were inside the house having busted down the door. The fight lasted maybe three or four minutes, four of us taking on this guy. When finally it was over, there were knickknacks off the shelves, there was a panel ray heating torn off, police officers' ties and wrist watches and so forth, all damaged by this fight. But we got him in custody and we took him to jail. A little bit later that year, out on my own, I was uh, in the right place at the right time, and I arrested a husband and wife robbery team who had gone into a mom-and-pop convenience store slash liquor store, California liquor store arrangements, um, and uh, pulled a knife on the elderly man behind the counter. They cut him up pretty good and relieved him of $26. In uh, 1972, I shot and killed a man who was threatening to murder his three-year-old son and who had also threatened to kill his estranged wife, uh, her mother, and any cop who might intervene. In 1984, I rolled up to the scene of what came, became known as the McDonald's Massacre. Twenty people, excuse me, twenty people shot and killed by one James Huberty. I will never be able to erase from my mind the picture of ten-year-old Joshua Coleman draped over his bicycle. He played dead, an action that saved his life. Next to him is dear buddy, also 10 years old, also draped over his bicycle, but not playing dead. Inside, moms and dads and kids in mid-bite, awash in a sea of blood, and fat macs and fries and shakes. What is the relevance of these stories to the commercialization, the industrialization, the environmental, the recreational applications of cannabis? I think there are four points, four responses to that question of relevance. One, in not one of the cases that I have just described was marijuana present or in any other fashion involved. Two, these are the kinds of crimes that I've described that hurt people and frighten people and cause them to change the way they live, cause them to feel violated. When, uh, when I became a cop in 66, I was a reluctant candidate. A friend of mine was going to take the police test, and, and I had a sort of a bill of particulars against the police. 
uh, I had not had a pleasant experience with a police officer in my young life by that time. And one of the reasons that I wasn't particularly fond of the police is that three times as a kennelman slash veterinary assistant in the National City Pet Hospital in San Diego County, I was burglarized. Three times people broke into my apartment. They stole small amounts of cash that weren't small amounts to me. They stole my, uh, my hand-me-down gray gabardine suit that I had used to graduate, that I had worn during high school graduation, handed down from Uncle Bob. And they stole 100 jazz and R&B albums that I had been collecting since I was extremely young. I didn't have a particularly pleasant childhood. Music was for me, and especially that brand of music was for me everything. I was devastated by that loss, as so many others are when, when their homes get burglarized or they get robbed at gunpoint. Those crimes scare people, hurt people, cause them to change the way they live. Point three. If it is possible for the police to connect with the community, to develop a positive relationship in which both the police achieve high levels of job satisfaction and morale and support from the community and the community feels well served, if it is possible for the police to carry out their sometimes negative functions against a backdrop of support and confidence and public credibility, the one thing that stands most in the way of that credibility and public confidence is this country's drug laws which put the police officers on the front lines of that drug war. So it's important to me to point out that the kinds of crimes that I've just described have universal support or near universal support if the police handle themselves responsibly in carrying out those duties. The fourth and final point that I wanted to make in introducing a talk uh, at, at HempFest about other crimes is that if predatory crimes are really important to us, if we see those predatory crimes as the mission, the fundamental mission of police, then we've got to say so. Everyone has got to say so. Like the people of Seattle in passing Initiative 75, the people of Denver in, in passing Initiative 100. It seems to me critical that the, that the local elected officials and indeed the police chief and the brass of a local police department and the rank and file hear from everyone in the community who believes that the drug war has caused more harm than good, that the drug war's costs, both financial and in terms of human suffering, make it morally imperative that we end this drug war and that we release our police officers, encourage and support our police officers to do everything they can to stop people from hurting other people. More and more police officers, more and more police chiefs, more and more politicians are stepping forward. And they are, in fact, forging authentic partnerships with the community. 
and not just with the Lions Club and the Rotary Club, but citizen activists who are supporting, for example, drug policy reform. It's a wonderful thing to see. Honest collaboration. Something resembling, at least, an authentic 50-50 kind of a partnership. But there are obstacles. There are internal obstacles in the police culture. I appreciated Doug's remarks about my book. If one of the things you would like to learn is why police agencies uh, are so damned resistant, resistant to community participation in this partnership, this book might be helpful to you. The culture of the police department is a product of the structure of the police department. And policing across this country operates within the context of a paramilitary organizational arrangement, which makes the opposition predictable. Even those principal police officers who support an end to the drug war, or support medical marijuana, or support recreational use of marijuana and the reform of marijuana laws, are often afraid to speak up. They are afraid to lose their jobs. They are afraid to lose that uh, promotion to sergeant or assignment to homicide or robbery. They're afraid. Politicians who feel the way I feel and no doubt the way most, if not all of you feel, are not much different. They're afraid that if they're running for office, they won't get elected. If they're in office, they won't get reelected. If they're in office and using that office as a stepping stone to higher office, where the, where the base becomes broader and broader, they won't get elected to that higher office. And yet they feel strongly that the drug war has done more harm than good. So I think we need to confront the issue of fear. We need to confront inertia. We need to confront multiple and colliding priorities in our lives. Some of us have a burning desire to see this reform or that reform. But we also need to confront, it seems to me, the differences that exist between and among us as reformers. It wasn't that long ago that you would not have had me on this stage because I advocate the legalization of all drugs. See, here's, here's what I advocate. the regulated and controlled legalization of all drugs. There are advocates within the marijuana reform laws who say, leave the L word out of the conversation. I understand that, I respect it, and I will always do everything I possibly can as an advisory member of the board of Normal and the Drug Policy Alliance and so many other drug organizations to support what we might call more modest or more incremental forms. I even will lend my support to those who say, I'm sorry, but I am a prohibitionist when it comes to all other drugs. I favor, favor marijuana reform law, but not the reform, not the legalization of any other drug. I, we've got to find a tent large enough to accommodate all of us so that we can build this marvelous coalition of people who treat one another respectively and, and collaboratively in order to achieve what I think is the end goal of each of us, and that is getting government out of our personal lives, 
at ensuring that this costly, unwinnable, immoral drug war is brought to an end. Thank you very much. All right, once again, speaking at this year's Seattle Hemp Fest, that was the former Seattle police chief, author of the great new book, Breaking Rank, member of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, Mr. Norm Stamper. Warning, the government doesn't want you to hear this ad. Because they're embarrassed. They funded research indicating marijuana doesn't cause lung cancer and might even prevent cancer. Government research also found medical uses for marijuana, and no one has ever died of a marijuana overdose. The more research the government conducts, the more they undermine their own war on marijuana users. Visit the Marijuana Policy Project Foundation at joinmpp.org or call toll-free 1-877-JOIN-MPP. No official government truth this week, but thanks to some good friends in reform who probably want to remain anonymous, and to Mr. Samuel L. Jackson, we do have the following public service announcement. Snakes. The mofo anti-drug. Stop wasting all your free time puffing on that wacky tobacco. It's simple. Do as I say and you live. You know, the truth of it is, for some people with severe medical conditions, they have to do the exact opposite of what the government says to do. Two such people are the Reverend Eddie Lepp, and his wife. I spoke with Reverend Lepp at the Seattle Hemp Fest. My name's Eddie Lepp. Uh, I was the first person arrested, tried, and acquitted in the state of California under Proposition 215-1136-2.5 of the California Health and Safety Code, or the Compassionate Use Act, uh, allowing for the use of marijuana as a medicine by anyone who has a doctor's recommendation. Uh, Shortly after I became the first person arrested and uh, acquitted, uh, my wife and I, Linda, became very active. Uh, we had been active for several years prior to this, but we became very active in the activism work uh, of the marijuana movement. And over the last 10 years, uh, I've done everything from be the national director for the American Medical Marijuana Association uh, to... Uh, being recognized worldwide, internationally for our activist work. Uh, I'm currently facing four life sentences, $17 million in fines, an additional 40 years and $600 in special assessments because uh, my wife and I grew medicine for patients through our ministry. Uh, for the last year and a half, two years, we've been tied up in court and have been pretty well uh prohibited from doing anything. However, this last summer, my wife formed her own ministry and replanted the gardens and is now willing to face the four life sentences that I'm facing uh, to continue to grow medicine for the sick and dying patients of California. It is our most heartfelt and firm belief that our religious practices are no business of the state or the federal government. Everything we have done, we have done through our ministry and is done by us as the Lord's sacred work. We view this beautiful plant as sacrament and believe it to be the true tree, the true tree of life. Um, right now, my legal problems are somewhat in limbo, although we have made the court uh, aware that 
we wish to proceed at this time and no longer wish to waive our rights uh, based on the UDV decision which was reached about six months ago uh, the religious use of marijuana as a sacrament should be something that's very easily uh, taken care of through the court system due to the fact that the UDV decision allows for the use of the Watuska tea which if taken improperly can and does cause death and when you compare that tea to marijuana it's like comparing battery acid to ice water so if they've made the battery acid legal I don't see how they cannot make the ice water legal uh, currently my wife Linda is suffering from stage 4 cancer of the lung and sadly probably won't be alive this time next year to enjoy the hemp fest with us uh, because of the western medicine not working or the chemotherapy uh, we are now in the process of trying alternative methods uh, to save her and she is now at a sanctioned Lakota Sioux Sundance where many of the Sundancers are dancing to try to save her life we believe very strongly that the spiritual aspect of the human soul is something that has to be completely and totally considered when using these sacred plants because if your soul is full of hatred and anger and, and bigotry and all of the negative petty feelings that so destroy mankind the marijuana will work to a certain extent but if you can free your soul of all of the negative things if you can learn to understand that the creator doesn't want us destroying each other he wants us building each other up he wants us to be the best that we can be and to treat each other with respect and dignity and if you can get yourself to accept the fact that spiritually there is something greater than us uh, and use the marijuana in conjunction with a different outlook on life then it works more than just as a quick fix it works all day every day and it works in every aspect of your life it can be used to heal a whole lot more than just an acre of pain although it is certainly very effective at doing that uh, we would ask that any of you that are interested feel free to join us uh, you can contact us at eddiesmedicinalgardens.com or at mdmj.info uh, for more information about the ministry and our spiritual and religious use of marijuana as sacrament uh, if you study the use of cannabis for the last 25,000 years uh, you'll see that historically it has been used not only as a medicine but as one of the most uh, sacred of, of plants used in all of the churches that all of our archae uh, archaeologists have discovered uh, they have found evidence of marijuana in every civilization uh, historically the use of it has done nothing but benefit mankind and if you're using it from a spiritual aspect it truly does free you and put you much closer to the Creator giving you a greater understanding of our, our purpose as individuals in this great place that he's provided for us and I would encourage you all to act in such a way that on the day that you have to look him in the eye you can say you know maybe I wasn't perfect but I did everything I did hoping to bring you glory I hope that I've done a lifetime's worth of work that will make you proud of me and if you can do that then you can look any of us in the eye and as long as you can look everybody you meet in the eye you won't have any problems live your life by the truth and one love thank you I want to thank Norm Stamper 
and Reverend Eddie Lepp for being our guests on today's Century of Lies program. You know what I do here is to try to educate you and more than that to motivate you to do your part to help bring about the end of this madness of drug prohibition. The government agents absolutely refuse to come on our program because they know there is no truth, no justice, no logic, no scientific fact, no medical data, and in fact there is no reason whatsoever for this drug war to continue. So once again I ask you to visit our website which is endprohibition.org. There you can link up with about a dozen of the best drug reform organizations on the planet. Arm yourself with information and go forth to do battle to end this crazy drug war. Prohibido Istak Ivalesco. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Dean Becker asking you to examine our policy of drug prohibition, the century of lies. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Our engineer, Philip Duffy.